the Culture Guy Podcast. First episode in the fourth quarter of 2016. It is October, that is. Today we're taking a trip throughout the U.S. and into Asia. One more time, Asia. But before we travel over to the other side of the globe, let me point your attention to the blog section of our website, theculturemastery.com forward slash blog, 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 forward slash blog, theculturemastery.com blog. I would like for you to um, take a minute, if you can, to um, give some of the articles we posted a chance. Um, most interestingly to me is that we ran the stats on this podcast so we checked out who is listening where are you from and it is no surprise since i am currently based in the united states that about half of our audience is from within the u.s actually 54 percent however there are some surprising stats i thought there's a, a big chunk of people from the netherlands who are listening hodendal if you're listening again people from china singapore um from europe from south america the only continent that is sorely missing still is africa so if you have friends in africa or if you have business partners that um, might be interested in this pass it on pass on the link let them know about the culture guy podcast would be great to have some new audience members from those part of the world those parts of the world that are currently not familiar with our program and you'll just click on the blog where it says what's the headline the results are in so that's the website uh, that, that's the blog article you'll see a world map and the darker the blue on the map the more listeners are from that country so it's fairly easy to find also I had the pleasure of being a guest on somebody else's radio show this is actually a syndicated radio program and i think it's also a podcast so if you want to find it in the podcast section of itunes you might be able to um, the program is called connection it's by my friend gary rahman from baltimore maryland who is a real estate investor and also a fighter of poverty and inequality he's from the african-american community and we talked in in quite some detail about the current challenges, um, demographic challenges in the United States. You, if you live in the Western world, you may have heard of a phenomenon called Black Lives Matter, which is a response to uh, violence or, um, well, let's just call it out, uh, police killings of minorities. It, it, black people, black males in the United States are disproportionately more victims of police shootings than any other 
minority or, or any other ethnic group in the United States. And we talked about the race issue in the United States. So this is also a cultural issue within one big country. I encourage you to listen to that episode. The program's called Connection with Gary Rahman. You'll find the link on our blog. Um, go there, click on it, and you should be good to go. And in that vein, um, I want to continue our, our episode today because the guest I have with me today is also African-American. And he also hails from Maryland. He doesn't live there anymore. But um, he, for his work, he had to build a bridge for himself into Asia. And he took his family all the way across uh, the waters to Hong Kong to take on a leadership role for his organization. He works for one of the largest retail organizations on the globe. And he was the ethics chief ethics officer in Hong Kong or throughout Asia. His name is Michael Spencer, and we have him on the program today. Michael, I'm glad that you're on. Um, Michael Spencer from currently, I want to say, Arkansas. Is that where you currently are today? Yes, that's where I currently am, uh, originally from Maryland. Maryland. So that was a change then coming from the eastern seaboard going into Arkansas. Absolutely. There, there's somewhat of a culture change just going within the United States. How did you experience that? Was that an easy transition for you, or did you feel somewhat of a, a for lack of a, a softer term, was it a culture shock for you? I, I would say actually yes, and, and the reason I would say that is on the east coast of the United States, I would say that when you're in a business setting, you're really dealing with what is the issue that we have at hand. You would go through that issue in the meeting, and if there's time for small talk at the end, then you would engage in that if you had time for it. However, being here in, in this part of the country, um, I, I'll say some people use the phraseology, we like our sweet tea first. Mm -hmm. And if you don't establish some sort of personal relationship on the front end, then it's very difficult when you try to get into an actual business discussion because people don't feel that there is any connection with you. So it's literally trying to create uh, some sort of bond or some sort of like that you have amongst each other, whether it be sports or uh, recreational activities or things of that nature before you actually get into business. So I, I thought that that was ridiculous and not true. And then I tried it and I found how much better the business meetings went as a result of that. So I actually learned something. So rapport building through small talk or through establishing commonalities, however uh, superficial they may have appeared to you, helped you in, in establishing a certain level of uh, relatability in a relationship with your, with your peers, both in business and socially. Absolutely. I, I would say I had a reputation of being incredibly intense, and that was coming from people who I'd never did any business transactions with or, or had any of those meetings because I came in and I was all business, so that went out very quickly. But then when I switched it up, all of a sudden, Michael's incredibly personable. We really like him. We, we like interacting with him, and it made the, the business dealings go much smoother because I didn't have a reputation of being so intense, even though I don't think I really changed how I behaved in a business meeting, except I flipped it 
to, uh, I guess, go with the culture. Nice. And the, the reason why we're talking here today is not so much your, your transition from one United States subculture into another. Um, of course, I have you on here because I know you have been living outside of the United States with your family for work. Your employer sent you to Hong Kong for two years where I think you had a leadership role, right? Absolutely. I, I was actually the chief ethics officer for our company in Hong Kong, and I had responsibility for teams in China, India, and Japan. And at the time when we went over there as a family, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old, two, two little girls. Wow. So you had the, the full package of expatriation. You had to get used to a new work environment, new new cultures, plural, not just Hong Kong, but also India and Japan. And you had a spouse and, and little children to get used to the new environment, new home, uh, school or, or preschool, new shopping routine, all the logistics of an expatriation. Um, looking back at those two years, what were the most enjoyable parts of Hong Kong life? I would say the most enjoyable parts were getting to see a part of the world that you never thought that you would get to experience. I, I say that because uh, I'm trained as an attorney and, and so is my wife and usually when you practice law you get a license in a particular state in the United States and that's where you practice. Um, every once in a while you can uh, have a national practice but It's very rare that you can then turn around and, and go international unless you're in certain types of law. And I was more of a litigator, so I never imagined having that opportunity. But when I came to this company, I actually came in as an attorney and did in-house work, but again, thinking I would stay in the United States. And then when I got the opportunity to be part of the company's ethics office, that sent me overseas. So just getting to go and experience parts of Asia was just amazing and just getting to even tour with my family or with work I just saw things that I never thought I'd be able to see so you came home one day from work and sat down with your wife and said hey sweetheart I just got an offer to go to Hong Kong what what, what was the response you got <laughs> I'm trying to as I remember Uh, she knew that I was being considered for several promotional opportunities, two of which were obviously within the home office of the company in the United States. And the third seemed like an outlier, which was an opportunity overseas. And so when I came home and said, here's the offer, and then I said Hong Kong, I, I think whatever dish she had in her hand, I think she dropped it going, wait, what just happened? Hmm. So there, there was a little bit of shock involved in, in that. Okay. And... I guess you guys overcame that shock quickly. So, um, when, when you when you told me about the relationship building that you found helpful moving from Maryland to Arkansas, I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that building relationships in the Chinese culture is mission critical without having established a deeper level of rapport with your Chinese counterparts, you will have not a, a, a functional working relationship. Is, is, would you agree with that? I, I would say that's absolutely accurate. Um, one of the things that I would say is I remember coming in and my predecessor, uh, for whatever reason, had refused to eat almost any type of dish that was a, a 
Chinese type dishes. Mm. And so there was a sense from them that, well, we know you Americans don't like, and I said, I'm open. And I could see the look on uh, some of the, the individual's faces, and they said, would you try? And they said, chicken feet. Mm-hmm. And I smiled and said, absolutely. They ran, bought chicken feet, brought it back, and served it to me and said, you'll eat this. And I sat there and ate that. They were so excited that I was so open to some of the dishes that they liked that I could see them just open up as a team because I was willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And much to the, the shock of uh, some of my colleagues from the United States, they could not believe I was doing that. But I also knew that this would establish a relationship and it really proved to be beneficial for me down the road. Nice. Were you primed on that? Did they give? Did your company provide you with a, a, a cultural briefing or cultural training before that transition? Were you prepared for things like this? Uh, they did give us some briefings, but the, the difficulty that the company had was I had multiple cultures that I had to somehow get acclimated with, and the individual could tell me more about Hong Kong, but less about the mainland definitely nothing about India and, you know, a little bit about Japan. So I had a little bit, but probably not as much as I wanted because I just had such a a vast team. So really I thought, well, if there's something that someone is offering you and it's something that's important to them, then, you know, don't look at it as, oh, this is so foreign, I refuse, but try to respect them and try something that they're offering you. Nice. So, What do you think or what do you remember as being some of the biggest obstacles in terms of cross-cultural leadership and cross-cultural communication that you had to uh, overcome? I would say in China, one of the biggest issues was that uh, some of the individuals that I would meet would take you literally. And that was a concern when you said, I want you to achieve this goal, say there was a particular number if you're talking you know, business or something like that and says, by any means necessary, go get that number, they will do whatever it takes because they believe that that is helping the organization achieve that number. And in the United States, it is understood that you will go get it legally. You will not do anything that would run afoul of the law or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the problems that you have in, in that culture is that they're looking at it from the standpoint of, well, you said by any means necessary. Yes, I might have broken a few laws, but I got your number. Or yes, I might have padded this, but I got your number. And you're saying, but that is illegal. And there was some confusion in in China with that. So you had to be very careful with what you said and how you said that. In Japan, the biggest problem that I ran into was If you were looking for issues with individuals who might be doing things that either possibly skirted the law or could be considered a violation of policy, trying to get someone to tell you that that happened was very difficult for a lot of the Japanese because they did not want to break protocol or hierarchy because it would be construed as insulting to turn their boss in, even though they knew So you had to really ask them a direct question. And then if you ask them the direct question at specific instance or situation, 
then they would say, well, you asked me this question, I will answer that question. But if you ask for something general, do you see anything wrong? No. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Because they had, that, to that protect, the they had to protect their own face uh, and don't tattertale, and also had to protect the face of their superiors, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, did, did you and your family outside of work, did, did you ever uh, get into situations when, when later on you realized, oh, this was what happened because we're Americans and we did not uh, read the signs correctly or did not understand the behaviors of our Chinese or Japanese or Indian counterparts where you basically, we call it cultural fool moments, when, when you realized uh, that you were the cultural fool. Did any of that happen? I, I think in an indirect way, I, I would say I, I didn't understand that there was such a difference at least in the minds of those who were from Hong Kong versus those who were from mainland. Mm. Um, in the views of people like myself from the West, you would look at individuals who are from Hong Kong or from mainland China, and you would say Chinese. Mm-hmm. And that was very insulting in, in to individuals who are from Hong Kong. They said, I am from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I may have you know similar looks, but I am not a mainlander. And I didn't realize that there was a level of tension between the two, and I don't mean that to be disparaging to whether you're from mainland China or from Hong Kong, but I painted with a broad brush, mm-hmm. and I should not have done that because I assumed that it was so similar, but as I got to know individuals from Hong Kong as well as mainland China, I could see that there was a, a, a definite line of demarcation, even to the, the language spoken when you're can- speaking Cantonese in Hong Kong versus Mandarin in mainland China. And just those little nuances let me know that, you know, people are, are there, there is a definite difference. And then there's also a difference in just behavior because with one being a former British colony, that they have been raised in, in one, almost a Western mix with, with East versus mainland China. Mm-hmm. Would you do anything different if you went again? Or given given another opportunity like this, would you would you change any of of your approach that you did in in Hong Kong? I, I think I would be, as they say, be quick to listen before you speak or or make generalizations. I think that's one of the biggest problems that we have as Americans is that we think we know everything and we don't. And so one of the things that we have to do is be willing to just sit, listen, and observe because you'll pick up a lot of things just from watching interactions or listening to people speak. Mm -hmm. If I had listened more initially, I think I would have picked up on just the the differences between mainland and and Hong Kong, which should have been very obvious, but um, since I didn't have any type of background in Asia, I just did not know, and I did not realize that that there was such a, a, a gap between the two. What would you recommend now that you're back and, and you've, you're still with, your, with the same company, so you, you brought that experience and knowledge back to headquarters, what would you recommend any of your colleagues who would be sent on a similar mission, be it to Hong Kong or be it uh, in any other part of the world where your company is doing business, 
what would be some of the tips or what would be some of the advice you would give to a first-time expatriate in, in, in a role similar to yours? I, I would say read. Um, one individual recommended a book. I, I, I can't remember. It was Kiss, Bow, or Shake or Hands. Shake like, Hands, mm-hmm. yes. And so just reading some of those books helped, and I would recommend that uh, if there's any type of cultural training or course or individual that you can talk to, uh, continue to talk to as many people as possible who have actually been overseas and especially in the area where you're going because there, there are some things that, that we were able to avoid just based on those types of experiences. But I, I, I would say just continue to learn as much as possible and read as much as possible about where you're going mm. just so you have a better understanding. How, how did your wife and, and daughters adjust to the difference? I, I would say that the kids, as most children, were very resilient. Uh, as long as there was uh, another child to play with, whether they even spoke the same language, the children were fine. I, I think it was harder for my wife the, the first day that I went to work and she was home with the children. And again, another cultural difference was that in Hong Kong, people use helpers and that's just a part of the culture. And my wife was very concerned about having a stranger in, in our home and she was thinking of things of, well, could we have someone come in during the day and leave? And I said, well, in Hong Kong, that would be considered illegal. And as the chief ethics officer of this company in Asia, we can't go down that road. <laughs> so as a result, uh, she tried to do everything herself, but such things as if you were to have a, a parent-teacher meeting, well, they would expect the children to be at home. And in America, most people know that your children will probably be with you because there's no one else that's going to be watching them or something on those lines. But in Hong Kong, well, your helper should be watching them. So I remember coming home one day and my wife looked exhausted. Um, She said, I barely got dinner on and then we didn't have a vehicle. And so she had to take, whether it be public transportation or taxi to the grocery store. Um, Another little, little thing, but it was very big for us. We did not know that the grocery store delivered. So she's trying to lug water, food, has one kid on the hip, another kid is tired, but she's walking up. We were on the 29th floor of a 29th floor building. And so she was just so exhausted going through that. So finally she said, I, I think we need a helper. Uh, we were able to go through a process, screen, and get an individual to come and, and work with us. And it was probably the best thing that happened to us as a family because that freed up so much of my wife's time to basically raise the children while a lot of the other things that she was trying to do would be taken care of. And so it was a culture gap because that wasn't something we were used to, but in order to function in Hong Kong, it was necessary for us. Mm-hmm. So in, in hindsight, would you do it again? Absolutely. I, I think as far as my cultural growth, I mean, getting to go to India, uh, you're going for work and then you end up at some point going to see the Taj Mahal, you're in China, you're in Beijing, Shanghai, you go to see the Great Wall or, you know, whether it be Tiananmen Square or the Forbidden City, you're in Japan, you're in Tokyo eating sushi, it's like, who, who gets to do that? Mm-hmm. And um, just traveling to other parts, uh, whether you're going to Cambodia or Vietnam as a family, it's just such an enriching experience that I, I remember 
watching my kids play and as they're talking about well let's get on a plane to go to Japan and I'm thinking about myself as a child that wasn't even a concept but you know you have a three-year-old and a, a one-year-old talking about these different countries where for me that just wasn't part of the conversation nice so you raised children that have a very open worldview and are are seeing this uh, the the opportunity is the global opportunity as a given as opposed to something that is abstract and far far away absolutely they they have a world view and our daughter our oldest daughter was uh, learning mandarin and was doing so well that the teacher thought that we must speak mandarin which i i assured her we do not and so we decided when we came back that she would continue mandarin lessons just because i want her to know that there are other languages almost other ways of of thinking that she could experience whether she decides she wants to become fluent in Mandarin or not but I think it's something that's going to help broaden her horizons most certainly so would you say that Americans in general and of course I would like to avoid sweeping generalizations but overall would you say that Americans don't get out enough or do you see that I mean you've been in your role for quite a while you're I guess in your I don't even know your age, but I think you're in your early 40s, right? So you've been yes. you, 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 you've been around in, in the professional world for a while. Uh, do you see that uh, it's become a trend in the United States that managers or people that grow into leadership roles do get to see the world, or is there still work to be done? Well, I definitely think there's still work to be done, but in the company that I work for, one of the things that they have started to emphasize is that they want more and more of the leaders to have a global experience and not just oh, I went there for two weeks but actually to be immersed because it gives you a different perspective uh, there's some assumptions that are made in the United States which can be frustrating when you're overseas I think one of the examples I used to have was just meetings you're 13 hours sometimes 14 hours ahead and they're trying to schedule meetings that are between the you know hours of eight and five o'clock central time United mm -hmm. States mm -hmm. and you talk about how inconvenient that is for you why don't you try having it you know in an evening and some of the retorts you'll get is well I have a family and you're like time out so do I but I have to take time away from them to go get on this call mm -hmm. so you need to understand that you're putting a greater burden on other people who are abroad and you're not reciprocating and I think that by having that type of experience I think I will be that much better if I were to have a global team and I think that some of the people that were at higher levels did not have that experience so it didn't make sense to them and so they couldn't explain it to you know some of the their support staff who never had been abroad they only want to schedule things within a certain time frame um, also being more considerate when it came to when the meeting actually started. It's You're sitting there and it's 10 o'clock at night and they're late. Mm -hmm. And for them it's early in the morning and so they're not quite sure why you're not in a good mood, but you've worked all day and then you've eaten dinner with your family and now you're getting back on for another two-hour call and they're not timely. And so hopefully I would be much more considerate about some of those things. Nice, nice. Well, certainly it sounds like that 
the chicken feet um, opened your eyes and your mind <laughs> and, 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 and helped you become successful in Asia. Michael, thank you so much for, for sharing your stories and sharing your insight with us. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you in person again soon and, and hearing where your journey in your organization has taken you, how your global mindset, how your global experience has opened doors for, for you and your career. Um, it was it was awesome to, to hear it from, from someone in your position with, with your uh, with the scope of your responsibility. So thanks for being on. All right, thank you very much. Michael Spencer from Bentonville, Arkansas. Well, actually, from Maryland. And I can totally confirm the sweet tea metaphor. When I moved to the southern United States, the whole sweetness hit me like a ton of bricks, like a very soft ton of bricks. That would be a story for a future podcast, how this German who came to the US to the Midwest realized how the Southern US are a completely different culture in and by itself. But you heard Michael, um, sit, listen, and observe. Don't be someone who assumes. And before you have an opinion before you judge the situation, look for the intention of the behavior that you're experiencing. That's a concept that we teach in all our training and coaching programs. Assume positive intention. No matter how foreign the behavior of the people that you're dealing with may seem to you, you you'll find it unusual, unfamiliar. However, chances are, that the person you're dealing with is is acting out of a positive intention, just like you are. The way to getting to your goal is just different than theirs. And you also heard Michael say that whoever goes abroad should ask their company for cultural training, for coaching, for some sort of support in order to prepare for the assignment. I can wholeheartedly agree, and all of our clients would probably too. say I probably they do with that um, this concludes our first October episode of the culture guy podcast the first episode in quarter four what are you doing in the fourth quarter to get ready for your global experience what are you doing to expand your cultural savvy I know I'll be in Tulsa, Oklahoma in November for the CETAR USA annual conference. Will I see some of you there? Also, again, check out the blog. A whole lot of new content up there. I wrote a piece about gender roles and sexism and how they may be viewed and perceived differently in other cultures. Worth a read, I would say. With that, I say goodbye until we hear each other again and stay the course, trust your process, cultural adjustment is not a straight line, it's meandering, we all are learning, we're all learning 
on a day-to-day basis. And I hope that we can continue learning together with us. Have a wonderful week. Have a wonderful few weeks until the next episode is live. Should be in two weeks. And until then, I'm out. Thank you. Thank you.